With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. 101. Are you ready? The First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Happy Friday. Friday is for everybody. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. You're a lime dog face pony show. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS. Thank you, Mr. Friday. Happy Friday. This is... This is... First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Stealing from the poor to give to the rich does not exactly sound like a Robin Hood kind of move. But it does sound like a Jay Inslee and Democrat kind of move. And that's exactly what's happening. Steal from the poor to benefit the rich. And if you say, Lars, you're exaggerating this. These uh, programs like the paid family and medical leave, they're clearly aimed at helping out the less fortunate. Well, that may have been the aim. I don't actually believe that it was because I think the folks who engineered this uh, colossal ripoff, if you want to be blunt about it, uh, that they they actually did intend that this system, they knew that it wasn't going to primarily benefit those working as hourly wage earners, that it was going to benefit people who made a whole lot more money than that. And the woman who's detailed all that is Elizabeth Hovde, who's a research analyst and director at the Center for Workers' Rights and Healthcare at Washington Policy. Elizabeth, welcome back to the program. Uh, thanks for having me, having me, Lars. You detailed well the reverse Robin Hood going on. Yeah, the reverse Robin Hood of paid family and medical leave, which sounds all warm and fuzzy at the beginning, and yet it's not working out that way already, and it's a relatively new program, isn't it? True. You know, when the state announced that the payroll tax for paid leave wouldn't be increasing again in 2024, and if you remember, it has doubled in its short lifetime, it reminded me to look into who benefits from the worker finance program. And as has been the case before, paid leave isn't primarily helping people in need. It's going to middle and upper income wage earners. And, you know, I think workers need to know this and that it should weigh into the policy considerations for paid leave leave in the future now what you detailed down and i've got the numbers and I'll, I'll be glad to post them with the work that you did at washington policy but you found out that when you look at people making up to 18 dollars an hour so just above minimum wage the percentage of those people who are taking advantage of paid family medical leave 
uh, or paid family and medical leave, I should say, because it's both, is only 12% of those making up to about $36,000 a year. But if you look at people making $120,000 a year and more, the number or the percentage is 16%. And if you look at 35 to 61, which is 70000 to $120,000 a year, it's 26. So you've got uh, well over 42, uh, 32, let's see, yeah, 42% of the recipients yeah. are, are in that range of 70000 all the way up to Bill Gates, right? Yeah, it's super depressing. You know, I think that Washingtonians in general have good intentions to help people and they hear about programs like paid medical and family leave and they think oh it's going to help people who are in need but it's not we're taking money from low-income wage earners and we're handing it over to people who make more money with ample resources it's backward and depressing and i think if more people knew about it the reality they wouldn't be so supportive of things like this and I guess what I wonder about is, Elizabeth, if you go on this paid family and medical leave, uh, do we have a rough idea, say, for one of those average wage earners who's making 18 bucks an hour or less, how much of a payment they're going to get? Because it's a lot easier, I would say, to take uh, time off from work if you're already making 120 or 150 thousand dollars a year than it is when when you're making 17 or 18 dollars an hour. So if somebody's in that that wage range, what kind of of, of a stipend do they get to take some time off for medical leave or for family? You know, I'm. Uh, let's see. The weekly amount of the payout is was I think capped. This year at fourteen hundred twenty-seven dollars. A week so or a month. So workers here, uh, oh, is it? For, sorry to hit notes. you with a, I believe a question. that's the monthly wage. So, 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 in other words, somebody who's making thirty-six thousand dollars a year. If you're right at eighteen bucks, that's three thousand dollars a month. If you take paid family medical leave, you're only going to get half of that, or a little less than half of that. You get less, and the and the reality is, people who are more uh, are making lower wages don't have the luxury of taking twelve weeks off work. No, but if you're up at the upper end, do you still get uh, a a, pers- a percentage of say sixty one bucks an hour, which is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year? I would have to look up the exact okay. before I'm quoted on that. No, no worries, but, but but my point is that if you're a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, and you're making 150, 200, 250 thousand a year, and you say, well, I'm still going to get some check from paid family medical leave, it's a lot easier, perhaps, at that at that wage level to be able to say, I'll take some time off and take a smaller paycheck, and when I go back to work, I go back to making you know one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. It becomes a lot easier than for the average wage earner who still has to pay the rent and all the other expenses of living and was only making thirty six thousand dollars a year to begin with and got less than half of that from the program. So you can see how the mechanics of it work out well for the advantage of people who are well paid and not so well for those people at the bottom end of the scale. Yeah, it's a it's a tough thing. You know, workers should be able to choose which life needs they save for and how and whether they invest in those things. And with this program and the new Washington Cares program for long-term care, we've taken the ability to finance the life needs you do have because your money is going to programs like this for things you may not need. 
Well, and may not even use because there's a range of things you can do. If you say, well, my wife and I are going to have a, a baby or my husband and I are going to have a baby. Okay, that's that's wonderful. Have you prepared so you can take some time off of the new child? Oh, no, the state's going to take care of that. But but if they've already taken the money out of your paycheck uh, so, so that the state takes it away from you, you don't get a chance to say, well, we're not going to have any more kids. We'll, we're never going to we're likely never going to use that program. They say, well, we're just going to take your money anyway and give it to somebody else. It's very much an income shift or redistribution, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, some people who have already had their children are now needing to put them into launching into life or college or whatever, whatever form that's going to take. They are not eligible to help their children and bond with their new college children. You know, it's just a backward thing where we're, we're saying what's important to the state is what you can save for and spend your money on. What's important to you is not. And by the way, this money is also taken from employers who already give their employees paid time off for both sickness or family needs, but they have to pay anyway for what? For the employers who don't do that? Yeah, they have to contribute as well to the worker. So the, I think in the case of a $50,000 worker, I thought about $300, 291 I think, goes toward paid family medical leave and the employer on that employees' behalf also have to contribute, I think, about $108. This was in 2023. So it ends up being about 400 bucks a year that's taken away from you to be given to somebody else. Elizabeth, thanks for what you do at the Washington Policy Center. Back in a moment, I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And this segment brought to you by NickShivers.com. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. At Uline. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Exercising the right to free speech every day. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And if you thought the attacks on police and the policing of American cities were over, they are far from over. In fact, the latest attack has been laid down by the state of California. And unfortunately, I expect a lot of other blue states to follow California's lead. And here's what they've done. And it's very, very easy, I think, for average folks, including people like me, to miss this. They have made it illegal for doctors and medical examiners to say that somebody died of what is called excited delirium. And we're going to get into what that means and why this is so very significant, because the law also says police can no longer say that somebody suffered from excited delirium, nor can they write it up in their reports, nor can anybody testify about it when they come to court. Well, since it involves legal things and terminology, I thought we'd bring on our friend Bill Jacobson, who's founder of the law blog Legal Insurrection. He's a clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law. Uh, professor, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back. Were you aware of this issue of excited delirium that's been used in about the last decade or so to describe, in, in some cases, the deaths of suspects, you know, who die not because of what the cops are doing, but because they are so very, very wound up, I guess is the best way for a, a layperson, a non-doctor and a non-lawyer like me to describe it. Yeah, well, I, I've heard of it. Uh, it does come up in cases to explain why somebody may die, you know, in custody or while being restrained uh, with no apparent reason. Uh, and uh, to me, it's really a medical issue. You know, you call the medical experts and they testify to it. What I think is outrageous is that California is saying that's off the table now. You can't even bring that in as opposed to letting the judge rule in a particular case based on particular evidence, based on particular expert testimony, based on that autopsy, et cetera, whether it applies. They're just saying you can't talk about it. So this is a very, a, another reflection of how the legal system is coming uh, becoming completely politicized by uh, racial politics. That and, the and, government it, and it does come down to racial politics, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is, you know, George Floyd. I don't know if that was asserted as a defense there, but I know it was certainly talked about as to why he might have died, um, you know, under those circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, this is an issue that they don't want um police basically to be able to defend themselves and they want to almost create a presumption that if you die in police custody the police are at fault and again i'm not saying in every case it would be appropriate i don't claim to be a medical expert on it but to say that across the board you can't even attempt to assert that defense seems very political well, and it seems political to me to have the law dictate to a medical expert, a medical examiner or a doctor. It applies to all those people and say, you're no longer allowed to cite this as a cause of death. You have to cite something else as a cause of death. So if you eliminate that and it was the cause of death, then I guess you're led to believe, well, then it must have been because the person was in police custody or because he resisted and they used force to take him into custody, which happens in a, in a very tiny number of cases, actually. I know out of all the police contacts, I've looked at the stats before, a tiny number of times police have to use force at all of any kind, even a control hold, uh, you know, or other devices to try to bring somebody under control. So if you tell the doctors and the cops you can no longer cite this, then I guess it, it must be the cop's fault then. 
Yeah, and that's it. I mean, and this is again a reflection of how political the criminal the criminal system is becoming. That you know, I think there are other states that uh, maybe they don't have it on this specific topic, but are creating various presumptions and things like that. Uh, it might be Washington State. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I know there was something out of Washington State. I think Minnesota also that is you know taking kind of a critical race theory analysis to criminal law to the defenses that can be asserted almost always by police, um, you know, uh, as justification for shooting or as a defense to, you know, being prosecuted. And so it's an attempt to stack the deck mostly against the police in these sort of things. And I, and I repeat again, I'm not saying in any particular case it's warranted. A judge may rule, hey, there's no evidence here, or I'm not accepting that as a theory that can apply in these circumstances. That's fine. I'm not saying it has to be allowed. All I'm saying is to across the board, take it off the table, I think is very political. And by the way, I, I know that uh, the, the, the news reports out today about the signing of this bill by Gavin Newsom about a week ago, uh, it, that, that it was cited as a legal defense in George Floyd in Minneapolis and Daniel Prude in Rochester, New York, and Angelo Quinto in Antioch, California, and a number of others that in the last 15 years, doctors have begun to say, we think this person died because their system was overstressed by this excited delirium, that it wasn't drugs. I mean, a lot of us guessed in Floyd's case, well, if he was high on drugs at the time, did the drugs contribute to his death? Uh, or maybe it was something else. I know when they tried to put him in the back of that police car in Minneapolis, he fought them and he fought them pretty effectively saying, no, you know, you can't put me in there. And they blame this on claustrophobia or a number of other things that may have affected George Floyd. But if that's what killed him or contributed to his death, the jury should hear about it. But if the medical experts are told you're not even allowed to say it. You can't write it in your report, and the police can't cite it in their report. It just sounds like it ultimately comes back to the police are at fault no matter what. And at that point, you may right. get some police that are going to be very passive, saying, I'm not going to run up against that and, and, and end up spending the rest of my life in prison. That's right. And, you know, this is, again, police stop acting. They'll stop restraining people. They'll stop arresting people. And you'll get into this cycle where, well, you can't assert it because the medical examiner didn't put it in there. Well, the medical examiner didn't put it in there because he's not allowed to or she's not allowed to. So it becomes a vicious circle. Why don't we just hear the evidence, uh, hear the medical evidence, and the judge, like judges do in you know, thousands of cases every year, uh, will make a ruling on whether it is you know, warranted, that medical testimony is warranted in this specific case. But to, to take it across the board is a message from California to the police that we, you know, here's another way in which we're going to make your job next to impossible. Yeah, and at that point, how do you get people to go into a profession if they're told you could do the right thing every single time, even if you're taking somebody into custody. But if we decide that uh, there was no other reason and no other reason given for this person's death and you're responsible for their death, you're going to be in civil court, you may be in criminal court, and you may end up in prison. I can't imagine a lot of people wanting to sign up for that. Professor Jacobson, thanks very much. That's Bill Jacobson, the founder of the legal blog called Legal Insurrection, which is a great read every day. Clinical professor of law and director of the Securities Law clinic at Cornell Law School. The new law signed into effect October 8th 
by uh, Governor Gavin Newsom of California. And I would fully expect that other blue states around America are going to follow suit. They're going to say, let's cut off all the defenses that the police are able to use, legitimate defenses about why somebody really died or why somebody suffered when being taken into custody. And at that point, the police are the ones who are going to pay the price. And ultimately, that means we, the public, will pay the price as well. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. The sound of freedom. Here's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you and always glad to get to your calls. We'll get to those calls in just a moment. But first, I want to talk to our friend Miles Yu, who is not just a great friend of the program. He's senior fellow and director of the China Center at the Hudson Institute about what's going on. Joe Biden's secretary of state, the uh, estimable Anthony Blinken uh, and national security advisor Jake Sullivan. Uh, who has a history that you just wouldn't believe. But they're set to meet with China's top diplomat this week. So is that going to actually get anything done that will actually change things for Americans? Uh, Miles, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Should we expect much out of these meetings, or is this just uh, just for show? It's yes and no. I mean, dealing with the Chinese uh, uh, can be very tricky. So on one hand, uh, uh, this uh, foreign minister uh, and the foreign policy czar who is a Politburo member of the CCP, uh, comes to Washington, D.C. to basically make a transactional logistic arrangement for the upcoming uh, Xi Jinping's visit to San Francisco to meet with uh, President Biden, who is going to host this uh, Asia-Pacific Economic uh, uh, Cooperation Conference. So basically, it's transactional. On the other hand, every time you deal with the Chinese Communist Party official on transactional business type, Aside, they always come here uh, with some bigger and more ambitious objectives. They're going to come here to seek uh, America to change the completed overall perspective on China. They want us to basically to shut up. They want us to uh, to basically to uh, to meet their demands. So there, there could be both. So we don't know. They they look at this opportunity like this as basically an opportunity to, to reach the strategic goal, not just for transactional purpose. Okay, but but when usually when any people anywhere on the planet, Miles, get together and one side wants something, usually the other side wants something in return. I take it the Chinese don't approach things that way. It's this is what you're going to give us and we're not giving you anything. Or will they come bearing any kind of gifts? Yeah, as long as the exchange is in kind, that's fine, right? It's giving and take. It's basically what diplomacy is, is, is mostly about. Yep. On the other hand, the Chinese don't want to, 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 to trade exchange in kind. They want us to give up our principles, our major policy initiatives, our strategic overlook, uh, in exchange for our, uh, for, for basically granting us the opportunity to cooperate with them on specific issues, be it the climate, the fentanyl, 
regional security Taiwan. So in order to get to China to to play ball, we would have given up a lot of uh, uh, major issues, the, uh, the fundamental values of America. This is the lesson of the 1970s. Richard Nixon went to China to seek uh, specific cooperation from China, mostly to help us get out of the Vietnam War. But in the process, China raised the stake much, much higher. In, in the end, we're sucked into, into the Chinese trap. So we give up on our strategic outlook. We give up Taiwan. Uh, we give up um, on, uh, on many issues that touched upon political and the ideological differences. We don't talk about that. Uh, human rights, intellectual property rights, many, many other things have been off the table for almost half a century, half a century until Donald Trump came, out, came around and we changed the policy. And I'm glad the Biden team more or less accepted what we have changed. Now, see, that's the part where I just don't understand it. We're the big dog on the planet. China would like to become the biggest, most powerful country on the planet economically, diplomatically, militarily. Seems very clear that's where they want to go. Shouldn't we be saying, no, you want something from us, you're going to need to give us something. And you mentioned one of them, the fentanyl issue, where, as I understand it from the DEA, most of the fentanyl that's now killing over 100, well, no, I'm sorry, I almost overstated. Opioids are killing over 100,000 Americans every year. About 70 or 80,000 of that number is uh, is from fentanyl. But almost all of that fentanyl is coming from China. Wouldn't that be a great ask for, for Biden to say, you want something from us, shut down the outflow of fentanyl from your country that is poisoning our people. And yet I get the impression Joe Biden isn't inclined to ask anything from people, from entities like China. Well, first of all, China's fentanyl uh, role is based to facilitate the drug cartels in Mexico. They give them component materials, technology, yeah. even some financing. So, so it's indirect. But again, you're absolutely right. So this has become a major national security issue. That's why Blinken, everybody went to China to talk about this. China refused to play ball because China wants something more, something bigger. Um, and we actually uh, have one very important uh, uh, principle we have forgot. That is, we have to keep in mind, as much as China um, is, uh, 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 as much as the United States needs China to engage us on dealing with issues like fentanyl, like climate change, China needs the United States much, much more than the United States needs China. That's a very important point we have to keep in mind because the Chinese economy is so much intrinsically related to international global market where we can play a very important role. China, uh, sometimes we tend to panic when China say uh, it's playing hard to get. And so Biden team sometimes uh, getting in the habit of begging them to, to play ball. I would always keep in mind that China needs us more. And look, Xi Jinping has tried for several months that they don't want to engage with the United States. And look at what happened to China's economy. And foreign investment is down almost by 90%, right? Export to the United States has dropped dramatically. And consumer confidence in China also dropped uh, uh, greatly. So without the United States facilitating China into the global market, Chinese economy is in big trouble. So the nation is in uh, in a downward spiral. This is one reason why China right now has to, to you know, let its hair down and send its diplomats, send Xi Jinping here to the United States, to basically to engage with the United States. So it's like a like a cry baby. You you let him cry and and they laugh for a while. And then, remember, to deal with China, the most important thing obviously to to ask China to cooperate in a nice way. On the other hand. 
So ignore China would have a much bigger psychological impact on Chinese leadership. They'll always have to come back because the stake is much higher to them than to us. And always keep in mind, China needs the United States, needs the free market of the world much better, much more than we need them. I'm talking to Miles Yu. He's at the Hudson Institute as the senior fellow and director of the China Center. But what, what, if anything, would you expect Blinken and Jake Sullivan to, to set up for that meeting between uh, Biden and Xi uh, in any way that they're going to ask for? Is, are we going to hear any of that communicated so the American public knows what they're asking for and what we're offering to give them? Okay, so uh, since last year, in November, uh, of 2022, uh, the Biden team has keeps, uh, has been uh, sending Chinese the red line the, of the United States. And number one, we absolutely oppose China to provide any material uh, uh, assistance and lethal weapons to Russia for the war in Ukraine. Right. Number two, another bottom line, the red line is no military action against Taiwan. And uh, Biden said, if you do, and then we are going to uh, respond with American military uh, involvement. That has been consistent, uh, not just Biden, consistent from every president since Jimmy Carter. So uh, that's the bottom line. So I think right now China is continuing to, to, to ratchet up the tension uh, in South China, say, particularly the Philippines. And so and we are going to basically, uh, I, I hope that the, the Jake Sullivan and the President Biden Will, uh, Blinken will tell the Chinese, listen, the Philippines is a different country. Philippines has a mutual defense alliance with the United States. Any military encounter with the Philippines, the Philippines is under attack. We, United States, is under duty obligation, obligation to defend, to come to the, defense of, the uh, defense of the Philippines through means of arms. So that message, I think, in the Biden, I expect Biden to send to, to the Chinese. I mean, well, you can I see, almost on weekly... I just, Miles, I just can't help but think if, if it were Donald Trump sitting there as president, he'd say, look, you folks are weak. You need us more than we need you. And you're going to and we're going to deal from a position of strength and we're not going to give up that position. Miles, thank you very much. That's Miles Yu from the Hudson Institute. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you're in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Be honest. You're listening because you like what you hear. Right? 
Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's honestly provocative talk radio, and it's my great privilege to welcome to the show Cully Stimson, Senior Legal Fellow for Heritage Foundation and Manager of the National Security Law Program. How are you doing, Cully? Hey, Lars. Thanks for having me back. I'm glad to have you back. So uh, I'm kind of enjoying this. I'm getting some of that German-style schadenfreude when I watch what's going on in Washington, D.C. with Muriel Bowser, the mayor, saying, hey, we've got to do something about this crime. It's getting pretty nasty around here. I I'm sure she didn't say it the way I said it, but that's effectively what she's doing, isn't she? Or, or is she just uh, trying to put up some wallpaper and cover the problem that they created with their own actions? The latter. Um, although she's a politician, so she's covering her six, too. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's one of these, you know, my God, I didn't know there was gambling going on in the casino moments. Shocker. Um, you know, I testified in front of the House Judiciary Committee two weeks ago to lay out the five main problems in D.C. that have created a culture of lawlessness. And, of course, the D.C. City Council is the number one place to blame. But you look at a U.S. attorney's office, who, as you know, Lars, is the DA here in the city. Yep. They have a 67% declination rate. In other words, when the cops bring them good cases, they decline 67% of them. I, I guess the great irony I see is you've got a city run by liberals in a capital that's dominated by liberals, and every liberal you know, you can, you can, you're willing to listen to will tell you, why we've got to control guns. We've got to, we've got to get on top of guns. And they got a gun problem sitting right there in Washington, D.C. And the message doesn't go to the U.S. attorney. By the way, prosecute a bunch of these people who are caught violating the laws we already have on the books. They're just letting it happen. Yep. They're letting it happen. And in fact, I wrote a piece in the Daily Signal and then the local paper, the Washington Times recently explaining it's a very fixable problem. And don't have to believe me, even though I was a prosecutor here in town doing homicides and violent crimes. Ask the D.C. police union chief, Greg Pemberton. When I asked him at a Heritage panel a few months ago, you know, if you took every felon in possession case, and by the way, they arrest tons of those every single day in D.C., to federal district court and charge them as ex-felon in possession under federal law, they would get mandatory minimum prison sentences, long prison sentences. If you took everyone there, what would happen? And he said the crime would go down immediately. But what does the U.S. Attorney's Office do? Uh, they send it to D.C. Superior Court. They drop the felon in possession charge. They charge every single one with carrying a pistol without a license, which is a joke. And they walk out of the courthouse with probation. And Matt Graves could change that tomorrow. He's the U.S. Attorney, but he won't do it. And, and let me guess, he's not doing it because when they arrest people for felon in possession of a gun, which to me is a felon, another felony waiting to happen, uh, you know, when he pulls the gun out to commit a robbery or kill somebody or do a drive-by, that, that a disproportionate number of those people are young black men. Is that the reason they're declining? Or not the official yep. reason, but the real reason? Of course it's the reason. That's exactly the reason. And, you know, the sad reality is that blacks commit a disproportionate number of violent crimes compared to the percentage they are in the population. It's just a sad reality of crime in the inner cities today. And if you, and if you say the truth, which that is the truth, you're called a racist. It's not a racist. It's just a static. It's a static number. It's just a fact. And in fact, uh, Lars, when Jesse Liu, who I actually started in the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office with us at AUSA back in the day, 
became the U.S. attorney in the Trump administration, and she announced that she was going to take felon in possession to federal district court. Oh, my God, you would have thought that she was, you know, the sky was falling. Oh, you can't do that. It's racist because you're focusing on the places where crimes are actually happening. She's like, no, this policy applies to everyone in the city, and everyone went up in arms. And now all of a sudden you have congressmen who are carjacked like Cuellar. You have other congresswomen who are beaten up by thugs in their elevator in their apartment here in D.C., and all of a sudden Congress is like, whoa, dude, I think we have a crime problem here in D.C. <laughs> D.C., you need to do something about it. So it's it's sad, Well, but, you know, look, homicides are up 33%, Lars, year over year. Sex abuse is up. Violent crime is up 41%. Motor vehicle theft is up 101% year over year. We have a serious cesspool of crime in this city. Well, and the problem is, I, I don't know how much people perceive this, but D.C. is a big town. It's five million people. Or I think it's five million in total. And uh, but you've got a, a metro area that's five million. So that affects it. Um, and and a, a large number of people who live in the district are people of color. And I feel sorry for yeah. them in the sense that, you know, they're the victims. I mean, I understand the disproportionate nature of black men committing homicides, armed robberies and all kinds of other terrible crimes. But right. they are still a tiny percentage of the whole population, and it's the rest of the population that gets beat up or killed or, or otherwise hurt. And they're the ones you'd be protecting if you put the relatively small number of criminals, black or white, behind bars. Right. Right. D.C. has a population of about 700,000 people. The U.S. Attorney's Office has 330 prosecutors. Wow. They have a 67% declination rate, so that's one prosecutor for about every 2,000 residents. San Diego, where I used to be a prosecutor, has 330 prosecutors in the DA's office. They have 3.2 million people in the county. That's mm -hmm. 9,000 people per prosecutor, and they have a 22.6% declination rate and no crime problem. Unbelievable. That's Cully Stimson, a senior legal fellow for the Heritage Foundation and manager of the National Security Law Program. Cully, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Glad to get your emails. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. And of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Welcome 
to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Happy Friday. Friday is for everybody. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. You're lying dog face pony shows. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS. First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. As many of you might suspect, or if you've listened long enough, you will know that I'm quite skeptical of the trans phenomena that's going on in America right now. But if people want to imagine that there's something that they were not when they were born, that is, you were born a girl, but now you're imagining yourself a boy or vice versa, fine, whatever floats your boat. Don't ask the American taxpayer to pay for it. And secondly, don't tell our U.S. military that I'm very proud of and very supportive of that the military has to change to make accommodations to make room for people who imagine themselves to be trans. And yet that seems to be exactly what we're being asked to do. And on that, uh, Terry Schilling joins me, president of the American Principles Project. Terry, none of this stuff makes sense right now. Would people say, I'm not really a boy, even though I was born one, I'm now a girl, but I'd like to serve in the military, and I'd like you to make a bunch of changes in the military so the military can accommodate me. How did we get to the tail wagging the dog? <laughs> well, thanks so much for having me, Lars. Listen, this uh, this all started in academia. Uh, it started uh, on the outside, and what happened was we forced everyone to go to college and get certified. Other words, indoctrinated into radical ideologies, and those people that have all the college degrees have all had to go through these gender studies classes, and now they're in the military. Listen, this is a big deal for the military to be going along with the trans nonsense because it's the best example of mission creep. The, the, the military's mission is to destroy America's enemies and to protect us from from the bad guys bingo this is this whole trans stuff is has nothing to do with it it's about it's about yourself it's about it, this trans industry is driven by narcissism trying to force everyone to go along with your own beliefs and fantasies no one else gets that why should the transgender movement get those types of privileges what's the specific example from the merchant marine academy what's going on there so congressman jim banks he chairs the and founded the anti-woke caucus in the House of Representatives, and he uncovered that the merchant marines have been providing exemptions for uh, transgenderism in the military. So they will actually help uh, merchant marines who are in the academy transition. Uh, they'll pay for their surgeries. They'll pay for their hormone treatments. Uh, it, it's, it's the full-on woke agenda uh, within our own military. It's, it's totally bonkers. So, in other words, the military's mission has now gone from protecting America uh, blowing things up and shooting people to protect this country when necessary. And we've now become a giant social experiment where anybody who wants to transition just has to sign up, promise to do this duty for America for a period of time, and we pay for their surgery and their recovery, and, and we make accommodations for all of the things necessary for them to recover from elective surgeries? Exactly. Well, the only thing that the military won't cover is a detransition because those people need surgeries too once you know once you realize that you've gone through all these irreversible surgeries there are surgeries that you have to get if you want to go back to your original uh, uh you know appearance as uh, much as totally you can 
Even yeah, though there's, even though you really, I mean, there's one poor young lady that I see interviewed regularly. One of these days, we'll get her to be, come on the show. But she talks about how she was given a double mastectomy as a teenage girl, and now she deeply regrets it. She suffers from the pain of it. She wishes that she had her breasts back, and she wishes that she could be back the way she was before a bunch of adults agreed to participate in essentially mutilation of a young lady. Which I feel sorry for, but I don't, you know, I don't know how you fix that. And even the fix is is not likely to set her back to the way she was. No, that's exactly right. She'll she'll never be able to nurse her babies. She probably probably won't even be able to have babies uh, because these these procedures sterilize people. These hormones sterilize these children. They're robbing us. They're robbing the next generation of Americans of being able to create the next generation. It's the ultimate robbery. It's the ultimate crime. You're destroying innocence. You're, you're destroying the next generation. That's what this is about. Well, and Terry, the thing I've never been able to, you know, because usually there's some stop point. Our society is full of deadlines and stop points. They say when you're under 18, you're a child. When you're over 18, you're an adult. When you're an adult, you have a whole new set of responsibilities if you're charged with a crime. It's a whole different thing at 20 than it is at 14. Uh, and we and we recognize that because of maturity. But what I've never been able to understand, Terry, when I was a kid and I said, well, I'd like to buy a car. When I was 16, I saved up some money. And my dad said, well, yeah, but you can't sign the contract to buy the car. I, I said, why not? He said, because, because the, in every state that I know of, all 50, or 58 if you're an Obama fan, um, they, <laughs> they don't let 17-year-olds sign contracts that are legally binding. How in the world have we, set, have we allowed children to convince adult doctors and adult medical institutions into making permanent changes in them in any kind of informed cons, uh, consent kind of situation? Well, it's very easy to understand, Lars, when you do the math and you do the research into the transgender industry. It's a $2 billion industry just for the surgeries alone. That doesn't include the pharmaceuticals, <laughs> a lot of the, the cosmetic operations. It doesn't include any of that. So what happens is they take their profits from the billion-dollar industry, and then they reinvest it into public relations campaigns. They reinvest it into campaigns and elections to get their people elected. They re reinvest it into lobbying, right? It's just like every other industry uh, that's, that's ever existed, except this is going after your kids. This is like the tobacco industry targeting children, right? It, except it's so much worse because at least tobacco doesn't sterilize you and prevent you from being able to have your own family someday. No, and you could probably smoke cigarettes as a teenager. I, I think I smoked one or two uh, when I was a kid just because I wanted to see what, what it was all about. And then I decided it wasn't for me. Cigars maybe on occasion, but cigarettes, no. But you could smoke cigars for a couple of years as a kid, and it's not going to dramatically change your life. Go in and become chemically castrated as a boy and then have your body parts cut off. They're not going to be able to put that back. It's going to leave a mark. No, but, but Lars, there's something about this movement that tells me and tells us that that's part of the plan, right? The, the, the left, as many people know, is full of population control advocates, right? They think that the world is overpopulated, that we need to force sterilization in third world countries. This is part of it, right? They want to lower the population in the United States. They think it's causing the climate to change. Um, and this is an easy way to do it is to, Pretend like you're helping people uh, cure their mental problems and their self-hatred and loathing uh, while sterilizing them, right? This is, this is eugenics part two.
I was going to say, I was just going to say, Terry, this is Margaret Sanger's dream come true without all the racial stereotypes or racial overtones because it'll apply to all of us and not just people of color because Sanger wanted to wipe out people of color, wanted to wipe out disabled people, wanted to wipe out uh, people who have suffered from mental disabilities. And she never quite achieved her dream, although Planned Parenthood is a terrible legacy to be, leave behind. But now she gets to do it. And just remember the German guy that she or the Austrian guy that she actually inspired in the 40s. That's Terry Schilling, the president of the American Principles Project. Terry, thanks so much for your insights. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Here's with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Simply by listening, you're proving how smart you really are. Lars thanks you. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, the Radio Northwest Network, and I want to talk about taxes. And as you know, dogs bark, ducks quack, and Democrats love to raise taxes. I mean, Democrats tax till the, well, till the cows come home. And in this case, it's the Seattle City Council that has an idea that somehow the tax burden in the Emerald City is not nearly high enough. So they've come up with a brand new one that threatens to hit both workers, the kind of workers who work for Grubhub, and DoorDash and Uber Eats, and it's also going to hit their customers as well. So I thought we'd talk about it with Paul Guppy, who's vice president for research at the Washington Policy Center. Paul, welcome back to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. Now, I have to confess, because I always disclose my dog in the fight, occasionally Tina and I have ordered from Uber Eats or from uh, DoorDash or from uh, Grubhub or one of those. So I, I guess I've got a, a financial interest in how this comes out. I don't make my home in the city of Seattle. But what exactly is the justification that the city council has put up to try to come up with this new network company tax? Um, okay, do you want the real justification or the cover story? <laughs> Let's hear both. the cover story first, the <laughs> gaslighting first, and then the real sure. reason second. How's that? 
Yeah, so a few weeks ago, uh, we got wind of a staff presentation that was being given to the city council about a proposed new tax, which is a, a delivery fee tax on apt-based delivery services, which you just described. And supposedly, this is to pay for an office within the city that would regulate and provide uh, worker safety standards and labor standards for the drivers who do this kind of work. Now, the drivers themselves have not asked for this. So this is where the city is just creating, trying to create a new mission in order to get control of app-based services. They're just way too free. Um, Customers are getting what they want. Prices are competitive. And Seattle figures, well, we can't have that. So they're starting to regulate it. And then the cover story is, well, we need to put a fee, it's really a delivery tax, on these services to pay for the regulation. The the true meaning of the proposal is very much simpler than that, and that is get more money. So they just simply want another source of revenue that they can put into place. And then, of course, they'll increase the tax rate in the future. Now, one of the numbers you alerted me to, and I wasn't aware of it, in Seattle alone, there are 30 million delivery orders every year. <laughs> yeah, I was amazed at that uh, as well. And as an independent research organization, we are definitely going to check a number like that. But it, it turns out it comes from the industry themselves. So what the city does is they go to these companies and say, how many deliveries do you make in the Seattle area? Uh, and it is a huge number, but it just shows you how much people are using these convenient door-to-door services. And by the way, it's not just meals. It's it's any other kind of shopping delivery service. So that's something else I wanted to check into. It's not just Uber Eats or DoorDash or Grubhub. It's literally any app-based delivery service that you ask for is in the in Seattle is going to have this tax put on it. Okay. And and the other piece to this is is it based on what you're ordering? I mean, if you order a $10 meal and it's delivered by Uber Eats, do you pay the same tax or fee as somebody who's ordering $500 worth of something? Uh, the answer is yes. They haven't, we jumped on this so early because again, it's a, it's a staff PowerPoint presentation that was made to city council members. So we kind of sniffed out that this idea is coming along. And so they haven't filled in the details. So it would either be a flat fee of 10 cents or 50 cents on every delivery, for example, but more likely it would be a percentage. So it would be, you know, point oh five percent on the value of what you ordered and of course once that quote-unquote fee appears on your receipt they'll just crank up the percentage in the future Uh, the main thing they're trying to do is to get it in place and then expand it from there now hold on groceries are going to be exempt so that means that the high-end you know uh, uh, household that orders $500 worth of groceries is going to pay, say, 10 cents or 50 cents, whatever it is. But the Mm -hmm. ordinary working person who's stuck at work and wants to order a hamburger is going to pay the same 10 cents or 50 cents to get $10 worth of food to eat dinner. Correct. So Seattle knows that state law will not allow the city to tax groceries. However, the definition of groceries is fairly narrow. So a lot of things that people order from the supermarket fall under the category of prepared food. So any kind of deli item that you order, any kind of meal, even if you're ordering it from Safeway or QFC, is going to be taxed like a restaurant meal and and that would also fall under this delivery tax so in other so words the grocery, mom who the mom who wants a gallon of milk and a, and a box of cheerios is not going to pay mm-hmm. the tax but the guy who wants the uh, you know the deli sandwich he will pay mm-hmm. the tax correct and the mom who orders both 
will pay tax on the deli sandwich and not pay tax on the, on the groceries. And the uh, delivery company is going to have to figure that out because well, they're the ones who collect the tax. And, Paul, if I've done my math right, remember, I'm only a high school math guy, but 30 million deliveries times 10 cents, that's 3 million bucks. How big is this city office going to be to get to generate a budget of three million bucks? And if, if it's 50 cents, then it's going to be more like a 15 million dollar budget. It sounds like a cash cow for the city. Yeah, well, you're you're stumbling on the truth here, Lars, because we did exactly the same math. The narrative is that the city estimates that, quote, regulating these services would cost a million dollars a year, and they want to hire staff to in order to do that. But as you're pointing out, this, the, the volume of this kind of service, even in Seattle, is far beyond that. And so that's another indicator, indicator that what they're really interested in is revenue and not just providing regulation well and the other thing is when they say they're gonna they're gonna somehow regulate safety so since all of this stuff is delivered in automobiles are they going to be inspecting every single uber eats grubhub or or DoorDash vehicle uh and are they going to take a look at the driving history of all the people in the vehicles are they going to insist that the vehicles be in proper repair i've had deliveries by people who had cars that weren't you know maybe the best cars in the world but they're going to do all of that and and then how in the world do they safeguard safety if it's a young lady who has to deliver, say, some food at one o'clock in the morning, you know, to a bunch of people who are high on state sanctioned marijuana uh, and she has to walk up to a strange door in a strange neighborhood. How in the world are they going to do anything to safeguard her safety? Yeah, they're not going to be able to do any of those things. They'll have a bunch of labor regulations, limitations on work hours, and all of this will be put on the drivers who are trying to earn some extra money or who like the flexibility of the schedule. And this is literally the government chasing a creative market. This entire service has been created by people who, who like the service. It's affordable. It's flexible. And, and then drivers who want to deliver um, services to customers. This is far too voluntary and free market as far as the city is concerned, and they are trying to jump onto it. So, so just to make it quick before we hit the break, Paul, that means the young mm. man or young woman who says, I want to take Sunday off, so I'm going to go out and do deliveries 14 hours on Saturday. It'll be a long day, right. but I'll make all the money I would have made on Sunday. I'll take Sunday off, and the city's going to come along and say, no, uh, you're limited in the number of hours. And how in the world are they going to regulate that? I'll just throw that out as food for thought. That's Paul Guppy, Vice President for Research at the Washington Policy Center. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show and check me out on Instagram. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. Larson Show. Just think of him as your concealed carry. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Welcome back to the program. Will the Democrats continue to push their green energy agenda despite the fact that they fail to follow their own rules when it comes to green energy? But have any of their climate policies actually been deemed successful, if this is what floats your boat, at reducing the amount of carbon that's put into Earth's atmosphere? Uh, our friend Dr. Henry Miller, who's both a doctor, molecular biologist, he's at the American Council on Science and Health, was a founding director of the FDA's Office of Biotechnology, joins me now. How you doing, Doc? Good, just great, Lars. Thank you. You've suggested that America's climate policies are not just a waste of time and resources, but they don't even follow their own rules. Uh, tell my audience what you mean by that. Well, not only do they not follow their own rules, but they're actually dangerous. As I like to quip, you can't get there from here with the policies that we have. So, first of all, the U.S. Uh, accounts for only 13% of worldwide carbon emissions. Yep. So, if we were to go to zero magically tomorrow, India and China and other developing countries would continue uh, to create um, gas-powered, oil-powered, and co even coal-powered plants at breakneck pace and way, way outstrip uh, any benefit from our 13% uh, um, of carbon emissions wiped out. Um, but the, the, um, the feudal um, policies that are being pursued in this country include, as you know, things like uh, a, a radical transition to electric vehicles. Yep. Um, the, the problem with that, there are no, numerous problems with that. Uh, one is that uh, when you account for um, the uh, carbon emissions involved in uh, producing the batteries and mining the rare earth elements necessary for the batteries and then recycling and disposing of them uh, you you come out you come out behind until uh, more than ten years into the life of an electric vehicle it 's about ten years. Uh, considering a um, driving about 7,000 miles a year until you break even. Uh, but that and and even. by the way, Henry, I don't know if electric vehicles will do the same as, as or will have the same history, but the average life expectancy of a U.S. vehicle, the average vehicle on the road right now is 13 years old. So if you say, well, you break even at about 10 years, so that means you get three years of benefit, uh, on average, before that vehicle simply quits or is junked? Well, th that would be on the basis of, uh, you know, the 13 years is probably uh, averaging 12,000 or so miles a year. So you, okay. might, you might get a little bit more mileage, but but it's still it's still um, futile, and it's not what we've been given to expect. The other thing that, that even that calculation doesn't take into consideration is that um, electric vehicles, are, particularly trucks, are much, much heavier uh, than uh, gas-powered vehicles because of the batteries. And so they're harder on highways and harder on city streets. And uh, They're also and so harder on tires, and tires are made of oil, aren't they? Exactly. They're, they're uh, petroleum products. Uh, so th this is just not a, uh, it's not a solution. It's a virtue signaling uh, by people like uh, Gavin Newsom and Joe Biden and uh, Jennifer Granholm, the Secretary of Energy. And speaking of Jennifer Granholm, uh, to show you how ridiculous uh, this uh, this 
predilection, this obsession with electric vehicles is, uh, a few months ago, she proposed that by something like 2032, um, the U.S. Army should have converted all of its vehicles to electric. (laughs) In, in all of his I mean, vehicles, including its fighting vehicles, like armored personnel carriers and it, tanks. Exactly, and there's a one, there's a wonderful cartoon that I think appeared on Issues and Insights uh, of a, an Abrams tank uh, stopped in a small village somewhere, and the uh, tank commander is saying to one of the villagers, uh, "Could you direct us to the nearest charger?" And that's crazy, but you know. It's, and I guess, Henry, it, it also requires us, I mean, a lot of the rarers, as you said, are, are, are mined overseas. And, and even when they've identified, there's a massive new lithium deposit that's been identified on the northern Nevada border. And it promises, promises to supply a huge amount of lithium, which is one of the things they need to make the batteries. The problem is the opponents, the environmentalists, they've already lined up to start bringing the lawsuits to stop us from mining it. So they're not even going to let us produce our own materials from our own country, even when it aids the cause they claim to be in favor of. And that's only one example of this backwards thinking. Uh, You'll recall that a month or two ago, uh, President Biden declared uh, a national uh, park, a national preserved area of a million acres, a million acres that was the the most productive site of uranium mining in the United States, which, of course, we need for nuclear power plants, which probably weren't going to be built anyway but should be so and and then we have uh, our policies toward oil toward oil exploration again discouraging it discouraging exploration discouraging the pipelines that we need and requiring that we we ship it in from abroad not only enriching uh, foreign nations but also uh, it contributing to CO2 emissions by the tankers that need to bring it in. So this is idiotic in every, every conceivable way. Well, in fact, even as you're saying that, Henry, the Biden administration is trying to negotiate with Venezuela, saying, in effect, we have our own oil. We, we make it. We bring it out of the ground cleaner than anywhere else in the world. We burn it cleaner. We have modern automobiles. But we want to get Venezuela to supply us the oil that we won't supply from our own resources within this country. It, it's just, it makes no sense at all. It's criminally stupid, Lars. It's criminally well, Is there any stupid. chance the scientific community could actually take a sensible role in this? Because so far, what I see is major universities have come out with all these studies saying, you know, the climate, you know, the 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 the, uh, the planet's going to come to an end. Global warming's out of control. The only solution is to is to crash our economy, and ignoring, as you pointed out, that China and India and other countries they aren't just going to keep producing CO two. They're going to increase their pollution even under the Paris Climate Accords. Their increase in pollution, as I understand it, goes all the way to 2035 before it flattens out. So we're going to crush our economy so China can build its economy and produce even more CO2 as we're fighting for every last, you know, ounce of CO2 out of the air in America while they're just dumping it into the air to beat the band. Exactly. I, I encourage your listeners to hunt up a, um, an, an interactive um, way of determining what interventions can have what effect on uh, global climate change. It's called En-ROADS, E-N-R-O-A-D-S. 
R-O-A-D-S, produced by MIT and some others. And it gives you an idea of how futile many of the uh, intervent, proposed interventions are, such as electric vehicles and uh, converting to wind and solar. You just cannot get there from here. No, and in fact, the, the one logical question, Henry, that I ask everybody, I say, where are, all the, where are most of the solar panels made? And they said, China. I said, well, then why isn't China using so They are using some, but their biggest new supply of electric energy is building a, an average of one new coal-fired electric plant a week. And they've been doing that for several years. They expect to do that for several years. And you say, well, if solar is, is the smart way to go, you don't have to buy the fuel, you don't have to mine the fuel, you don't have to ship the fuel, and they make solar panels, then why don't they use their own solar panels? And the answer is they understand that a big, vigorous industrial economy like China or like America cannot run on solar panels. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health, back in just a moment. You're listening to the best of the Live Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Saying the things you wish you could say. More with Lars. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Are your First Amendment rights still being assaulted? Well, Republicans grilled Joe Biden's DHS secretary and the FBI director, Chris Wray, on whether or not their respective agencies are still colluding with social media companies to censor Americans. I thought we'd talk about that with our friend Avita Duffy, who's a staff writer at The Federalist, co-founder of The Chicago Thinker. Avita, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It seems funny to me that the administration feel so strongly about wanting to censor people that they're literally before the Supreme Court right now asking for the power to, to censor uh, what Americans see and hear on social media. But then when you actually call people up like Secretary Mayorkas from Homeland and uh, FBI Director Ray, all of a sudden it becomes kind of hard to pry it loose from them. Why is that, do you think? Well, because I, I think they're they're very defensive, first of all. they They don't want to admit to any guilt, right? And they also want to continue doing what they're doing, right? And that's why they were very dishonest uh, in the hearing yesterday um, when, when Rand Paul asked Mayorkas, right, did, 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 did 
uh, DHS ever, you know, collude with big tech, big tech to censor Americans um, for things that were not threats to homeland security, like vaccine-related content. Uh, America's just, just straight up lied. Uh, about what the DHS has been doing. Uh, the same goes for Christopher Ray, Ray with the FBI, where, where Rand Paul asked, you know, are, are you guys still colluding with big tech companies? Did you collude with big tech companies to suppress First Amendment protected speech? Uh, both of these men were completely dishonest, and we know they're dishonest because of what has been revealed in this soon-to-be landmark Missouri v. Biden Supreme Court case. Well, educate my audience as to what's in that case. Because we've we've followed it a bit, but I want them to know. So Missouri v. Biden, everybody should go look it up. Um, and also you can you can look up on Twitter uh, Rand Paul's interview with, with Mayorkas and Ray. But uh, basically it, it, it is outlining all the ways that the federal government in the lead up to the 2020 election and after the 2020 election during the Biden administration colluded with big tech companies to censor Americans, whether that be about election integrity um, whether that be about vaccine-related content, whether lockdowns were good, whether the vaccine uh, actually works, um, and then the Hunter Biden laptop story. So many things were included in this. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what we also learned from, from Missouri v. Biden is that the DHS specifically has a subsidiary called uh, CISA, which is a cybersecurity infrastructure security agency. Uh, and they they basically said that we we've expanded our, our agency, not just to secure American infrastructure in the physical sense, but also in the mental sense. They said, we're going to make sure that we are securing Americans' cognitive infrastructure, yeah. meaning that they are actually going to make control our minds and make sure that we're thinking the right things. And that is how they allowed for the mass censorship that the initial judge in Missouri v. Biden said was probably the greatest assault on the First Amendment in American history. And they know that they're wrong. I mean, otherwise, Avita, my test of whether somebody's doing something right or wrong is often if I get a chance to interview them and say, are you willing to answer a few questions about what you're doing? The minute they start saying, well, we're not really doing what you're asking about, so we don't want to answer the question, they're, they're effectively answering the question by telling me, we know what we're doing is wrong, we know that we're doing it deliberately, and we want to keep on doing it, we just don't want to talk about it, because if we had to talk about it, we'd have to admit that what we're doing is wrong. I mean, it's, it's a, a little bit circular, but it's... Uh, it's effectively saying you're telling me you know that what you're doing is wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't mind talking about it. I mean, I, I don't mind admitting the things that I know are right. If I were doing something illicit, uh, which I don't think I am these days, at least by my best estimate, I, 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 may, I might not want to talk about it. I think that's the only reason Mayorkas and Ray wouldn't want to talk about what they're doing, because they know it's wrong. And if they have to say it out loud, the American public's going to know what they're doing. So there was a really interesting moment in the hearing where... Uh, Paul, Rand Paul asked, you know, are you, the, is the FBI still meeting with social media companies? Are they still doing what Missouri Biden, uh, exposed them of, of doing, of violating the First Amendment? And Ray said, well, we're still having some interactions, but they've, they fundamentally changed since the Supreme Court put an injunction on our ability to operate in the way that we had been with big tech companies. And then Rand Paul said, well, is that an admission that you were actually suppressing free speech and you were doing something wrong and then ray backtracked he said oh no i wasn't doing that no no no, that wasn't that was i wasn't admitting to anything um but of course 
if they didn't have, if they, if they weren't doing anything wrong, and the injunction said you cannot suppress Americans' First Amendment, First Amendment rights anymore with big tech companies, and then the FBI, after that injunction, changed their behavior, that means that they knew that they were suppressing First yep. Amendment rights, and he admitted it. If Ray were able to say, we only talk to the social media companies when we believe they, there may be uh, evidence of a crime, and that they can help us find that evidence of a crime or evidence of civil rights violations. But they're, they've gone way beyond their, their portfolio and said, no, we can go over and talk to these people, even when it doesn't involve a crime or civil rights violations. Well, how did that become part of the FBI's mission? In any case, if you know, I'm going to encourage people to go back and read Missouri v. Biden or the parts of it that can be read uh, by people who are not lawyers, and also to look at your stories at The Federalist and at Chicago Thinker. It is a real pleasure to be with you, and Avita, thanks so much for the time. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Check us out on Instagram and tell Alexa to play the show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you're in an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Happy Friday. Friday is for everybody. Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. And the lying dog face pony show. Call 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-HEY-LARS. Thank goodness it's Friday. Happy Friday. This is... This is... First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, Planned Parenthood's initial response following the attack by Hamas terrorists in the Middle East uh, is to publish a video critical of Israel. Are they openly supporting Hamas? I thought we'd get Sean Carney on, who's CEO and president of the group called 40 Days for Life. Hey, Sean, welcome back to the program. It's good to be back. Thanks for having me. It turns out that some of the initial Israeli airstrikes into Gaza actually took out one of the largest abortion clinics in the world. Is that right? Yes, and uh, the video that you referenced is awkward because they're, Planned Parenthood sent it out, and they're walking around. You know, it's kind of like this sad music, and this is a, a reproductive health clinic, and it's been bombed by, you know, Israel. And it's absolutely tone deaf. It just shows that... Planned Parenthood sacrament is abortion. I mean, there's just no 
filter. So, you know, Hamas went in and raped women and cut the heads off of babies, something that Planned Parenthood endorses. And yet they're just so tone deaf. They're trying to raise money off of Israel's retaliation. And I thought, you know, that's the part we've been talking this hour because I, I got a caller earlier in the hour who said, oh, both sides should just get together and admit that they were both wrong. And I said, the people who came in and murdered 1,200 and, as you said, raped women and cut the heads off babies, we've talked about that as well, they should, you know, the, the people who had that done to them should admit, well, you know, we should have expected it. Uh, you were right to come and do that to our people, and now we're sorry. What, we're sorry we exist as a state? Uh, I don't think that one makes any sense. But this business of, of Planned Parenthood, which, as you've detailed, uh, runs one of the largest PPF, uh, I guess it's PFPPAs, you know, Planned Parenthood, uh, you know, in, in uh, Gaza, is running a gigantic abortion center. And one of my producers even said, does Islam allow abortions? And I'm guessing it does. Is that right? No. No, most most uh, Muslims are are adamantly against abortion. Uh, that's probably not a very wanted uh, abortion facility. But I mean, Planned Parenthood's video basically says, "Well, how are we going to abort all these Palestinian babies if the clinic got bombed by Israel? What an injustice! Send us money. Um, yeah, send us money so we can rebuild a new abortion center in a place where you know where where they're planning more terrorist, terrorist attacks lives. on their neighbor." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, and send us a Taco Bell too. Terrorists love bean burritos. I mean, it's just so out of touch. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um, but it, it is believable in that it is consistent. You've you've interviewed me before on this. It's consistent oh, yeah. in the post row world. They don't know what to say, and they don't know what's appropriate, and they don't know what's inappropriate. They have left the realm of reproductive health and women's rights and all that nonsense. And they've gotten into owning infanticide, owning abortion up to 40 weeks, owning the fact that they want to deny health care uh, to a baby who survives an abortion. Um, they have just gotten so radical that now they're mad at Jews for bombing terrorists who raped Jewish women and beheaded Jewish babies. That is just, I think, unheard of. It, it is. Do they really think that their American donors, and I'm guessing is some of their probably the more well-heeled donors are from America. I'm certainly not one of them. I hate Planned Parenthood. They're a eugenics operation, and they always have been. But do they really think that Americans are going to say, oh, gee, uh, we've got to help re restore uh, abortion clinics in, in Gaza so, that, so the Palestinian cause can go on as before? Yes, because they see that abortion heals the world, and, and they have always had that approach. It's the solution to the world's problems. When 9-11 happened, free abortions. Hurricane Katrina, free abortions. Hurricane Harvey here in Houston, free abortions. Uh, uh, Hamas attacks Israel for, you know, abortion. Abortion solves everything. It, it is, it is their, their sacred cow, and they used to just talk about it like this at cocktail parties. They didn't tweet out videos wondering where terrorists can get access to reproductive health, and that's what they're doing now. I also think there's something else that's just broader that we see in America, which is it's perfectly acceptable to hate Jews again. I mean, we learned nothing from the 1930s and what went on in Germany and the sentiment that, that led to the Holocaust. We are merely 78 years after the 
liberation of Auschwitz. I was just at Auschwitz uh, recently, and and we we think we are so sophisticated, and we like cast the Nazis to hell, and we criticize Hitler and all that. We just think we're so beyond that, and it's a joke. And we're seeing how the the woke movement is a load of crap. Well, uh, and it's completely acceptable to hate Jews. I'm talking to Sean Carney, who's CEO and president for 40 day of 40 Days for Life. I mean, there are a lot of places on the planet where there's a dispute over a boundary. You know, China and Tibet, uh, China and India. I mean, Russia and Ukraine. I mean, lots and lots of boundary disputes. But where else can you find a boundary dispute where the people on one side say, Everybody over there of a particular faith needs to be dead and gone. That's the only yep. thing that will make us happy. Is there another boundary dispute like that? Because the U.S. has had its disputes with Canada uh, back in the day. Mm -hmm. What was it, 54, 40 or fight or something like that? Uh, we've had our disputes with Mexico. We actually governed a big part of Mexico for a while till we settled that one up with treaties and everything else. But can you name another place where they say the people on that side who follow a particular faith, they need to all be dead or, or we're not going to be happy? I don't know of another border dispute like that. Do you? It, no, it isn't. Excellent, excellent point that, that you just made. And by the way, this isn't like way over there in the desert in the Middle East somewhere far, far away. In New York City in Times Square, they were marching in Times Square saying death to the Jews. They're doing it in our own city. There's the footage of the poor Jewish kid eating his lunch in New Jersey at a public school. These kids come up and just start shoving them and carry them off and beat them up. It, it, it's insane that that is 1934, 35 Germany. And that whole notion that you pointed out, which is, hey, but they're Jewish. You know, that's what's rearing its head, and it's doing so at home. And you really have these awkward alliances. Basically, you have evangelicals, Catholics, and Jews on one side, and then you have terrorists and Hamas and white American liberals on the other side in academia. It's literally unbelievable how it's how it's transpired well and the fact that there are members of congress from the democrat party rashida talib aoc and ilhan omar all of whom refuse to condemn attacks on families and children and taking toddlers hostage and taking people hostage and releasing proof of life videos all of that sean carney heads up the group called 40 days for life sean thanks so much and i appreciate you coming on the program always glad to get your calls at 866 Hey, Lars, answer our Twitter poll. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And, of course, you can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. Honestly, provocative talk for America. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. 
You could sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Keeping you happy, informed, and always guessing what he'll say next, here's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And I want to jump to our friend Joe Thomas, who holds down the fort 5 to 9 a.m. on our affiliate station, WCHV in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's the host of the Joe Thomas in the Morning Show. He's also the program director for CHV. How you doing, Joe? I'm doing great, Lars. I hope you're having a, a wonderful week so far. It has been a good week. In fact, I'm, I'm tempted to ask you right off the bat about the choice of Mike Johnson as the, uh, as the Speaker of the House because, you know, at least on paper, he seems like a pretty good choice and that he might actually get some things done. Well, I just spoke to our Congressman Bob Good, who was one of the eight uh, who were uh, involved in the vacate, the chair, the motion to vacate. Um, and uh, and he was very pleased with the uh, with the choice, and he said it was a little surprising because they discussed it when they were first considering the motion to vacate, but they decided that they would go with Jim Jordan as the person they were hoping would do it uh, as the most notable, most well known. But at the end, you saw the. Uh, the conference came together, and he said the right things. He said, we're going to work harder. Uh, apparently, next week's district time has been canceled. They're going to stay in D.C. Good. So, I, so far, so good. Well, I guess what I'm curious about is, it, I, I don't understand. You're, you're physically closer to it than I am by, by about 3,000 miles. But I don't understand mm -hmm. the process. You've got uh, Kevin McCarthy who promised to do a bunch of conservative things and then reneges on the promise. So he gets the boot, which I applaud. And then they put up Jordan and all the left says, oh, he's too conservative. And so they say no to him. And then they put up a guy I read as a rhino. And that's Tom Emmer. Oh, no, no, no. We can't have him. And then they settle, uh, you know, on, on the man from Louisiana. I, I, what are they doing? Just it, go back and forth in, in, in opposite directions at times? Well, the thing about uh, Mike Johnson, and, and understand uh, Jim Jordan's issue, from what I'm told, was not his conservativeness or his uh, founding of the, the the House Freedom Caucus or anything like that, is that there were people who felt like he was behind this all along. And oh. all the things he said about Kevin McCarthy back in January was just a setup that eventually there was going to be a motion to vacate, and there were people that just... I, there, there were people who just didn't like him, and and that's always going to be a problem in a popularity contest. I was I was telling you know my listeners this morning for anyone who thinks that life stops being like high school when you graduate high school, you're in for a shock. By the way, I wanted to ask you about what's going on in North Carolina as well because you've got Roy Cooper, uh, who's who's declared mm -hmm. a uh, a state of emergency to fight against school choice. I'm just wondering what. 
you know, what should should I know what I think about it, but I'm curious what what citizens should think about the idea that this is a governor who says we don't want parents to have any choice. We want your kids to be forced to go to failing K-12 government run schools. Well, I spoke to some of the reporters from North Carolina and some of the conservative leaders in North Carolina being our neighbor and being a state that's trying to get school choice ourselves and fighting the battle in the Virginia General Assembly. And that's kind of what the election uh, in a week and a half is going to be all about, or the culmination of our election. Uh, but it, the, the people in North Carolina told me this was a show pony. This was just him mollifying the his, his Uber lords with the teachers' unions. There's no real force behind it. There's not uh, really a, a lockdown. No school buses are being held from their routes. There's no uh, restrictions on use of Wi-Fi or anything like that. It's, it was really just uh, a publicity stunt, if you will, a paper tiger. Well, because, Joe, one of the things that's always floored me about this argument about school choice is is the argument that, that Governor Cooper uses. And he says, oh, it's going to choke the life out of public education. Well, you know, if so, then maybe it needs to die. And, and if somebody said, what do you mean by that? I say, well, if you've got failing schools and you afford parents, all parents, the choice, you can take your kids somewhere else. Here's some of the money, maybe most of the money for the public education of that child. Take it to a private school, a charter school, an online school, a parochial school, whatever you choose. And you say, but all the public schools are going to lose kids. Well, if you're a failing enterprise, it's like being a, you know, if Charlottesville had a failing restaurant that did a very bad job of service and food and everything else, then they should fail. And if they, if they face failure and they say, gosh, we got to really up our game. We got to get in there and, and do things better or we're going to lose all our customers. Then you get a better restaurant as well as the competition. If the public schools actually, I think the only way to get them to change is to threaten their existence and say, if you oh, don't yeah. up your game and start delivering for the kids, the parents are going to pull their kids out, and that applies to rich parents and poor parents alike. The rich parents can already send their kids to Sidwell Friends or whatever cockamamie left-wing mm -hmm. institution they want to use. It's the poor people <laughs> and the middle-class people who can't. Well, and, and here's the thing, that, that Cooper's statement is a bold-faced lie because the places where money follows the child school choice has been enacted, the public schools benefited as well as anything. The, the, the test scores went up, the achievement gap closed, uh, whether it's Milwaukee or Florida or any place uh, uh, now, uh, um, Arizona and New Mexico, where, where they've done money follows the child school choice. The public schools have gotten better, and that's the secret Cooper doesn't want you to know about. And by the way, it seems to be a movement that I think mostly kicked into action. I mean, there were school choice places in America before the pandemic, but the pandemic really brought right. it home. The schools are failing oh. your kids. They're there to service the teachers unions and ultimately the Democrat Party. And you should have the mm -hmm. choice to take your kids elsewhere. I think most Americans, yep. right or left, said, yeah, I should. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing they're most afraid about is that they watch the 2021 gubernatorial election here in Virginia and realize that Glenn Youngkin pulled an awful lot of Democrats uh, to to vote for him because he was competitive in counties that no Republican had ever been one counties. No Republican had won in decades uh, because there were a lot of Democrats that said, no, I really do think the parents have a right to have a say in what their kids are being in school, and gosh, the test scores are just so abysmal anyway. How do you make an argument for 
keeping the status quo when we're, I think we're 36 nationally or globally in scholastic achievement now uh, of all the countries in the world behind great, uh, you know, first world countries like Vietnam and South Korea. Uh, it's crazy. Now, I'm wondering, uh, you remember the guy who, 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 uh, Young can beat? You know him because he's in your backyard. Is Terry McAuliffe. Has he come out of hiding yet? Because after charging that parents have no business telling us what we educate their kids, I thought that guy's going to go crawl in a hole somewhere. Well, he, he hasn't been public. Uh, he has been doing a lot of fundraising for a lot of the candidates uh, because President Biden ordered $2.6 million from the Democratic National Committee to be sent into Virginia's General Assembly race because Glenn Youngkin's act, Spirit of Virginia, had raised, I think it's right now, it's something $16 million just wow. for Virginia House races. Um, and so uh, he's been trying to use his fundraising charm to raise money he doesn't have the lincoln bedroom to rent out like he used to so it's a little harder for him uh so but that's what he's been doing lately is just trying to raise money for these house and senate candidates if you're in charlottesville virginia and in the morning you need to check out joe thomas in the morning on wchv our great affiliate joe thanks very much i appreciate it thank you lars appreciate it you betcha that's joe thomas from the great town of charlottesville you're listening to the lars larson show you're listening to the best of the lars larson show Larson Show. Portland. You know, if we keep meeting like this, people are going to talk. Here's Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show, and welcome back to the Radio Northwest Network on a Monday. Always glad to get to your calls, and we'll get to those in just a moment. But I've got to talk to you about something that I have an example, and it involves a friend of mine. So I have to disclose I have a dog in the fight. I've known Terry Emmerich for decades, and I think well of him. And I think the community thinks well of him. He's been in the business of moving giant objects like a million-pound rock or uh, an oil refinery or a hotel or even the Spruce Goose. Um, but he also owns a lot of businesses, and he develops land. And he takes, you know, failing enterprises and turn them into successes. Only in this case, the one big obstacle you can't get out of your way is when the government comes to you and says you are not allowed to run a club for people playing tennis because it's in a neighborhood. Now, it gets a lot more complicated than that, but I'll let Terry tell the story. Terry, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you, Lars. Well, no, we've owned the uh, East Moreland Racquet Club for many years, and the East Moreland Racquet Club started off with tennis, and they had outside sports court and basketball and swimming and all sorts of different activities. And then in uh, in the in the 90s, uh, we added a, a basketball court because um, uh, maybe exactly in the 2000s, maybe the early 2000s, we added a basketball court um, because, you know, we owned a team, the International League, and um, we wanted to have our own uh, home court. And um, in the cities, uh, at first said, well, you shouldn't do that. And then they said, no, that's fine. And so we did. And um, and that went along. And But then eventually uh, we had put more courts in. And, 
and did not do as much um, uh, with the indoor tennis at all. We did have pickleball, and we did have volleyball, and we did have basketball, and um, we also had futsal, um, all ball sports. Um, and anyway, um, we had a ruling um, that we've been fighting for a couple of years. Um, some of the neighbors got together and sued. They sued the city, and they sued us, saying that, we should have had a conditional use change. In other words, if George Moreland was selling cast iron pipe in the 50s and he changed the plastic, I guess he should have got a conditional use change, which is just crazy. Um, anyway, that's a, that's, great, that's a great metaphor for it. So now the 15 or so homeowners who live in your neck of the, or have uh, homes uh, that used to be owned by the tennis club, by the way, they've now said, we don't want this racket club even though it offers pickleball, which is now in, in much bigger demand, and people are asking you, Terry, why don't you take this thing and, and open it up for pickleball? You you don't have it open for anything at this point because the city has effectively said it's illegal to have a, 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 a ball sport complex of any kind in this area? Yeah, right next door to the golf course where there's balls flying on over all the time into the courts. Uh, yes, I guess that's what they're saying. Um and I'd hate to have, well, you know, the golf courses have started playing soccer golf. And I wonder if they got a conditional use change to change the size of the ball. I never thought of that. Hey, uh, by the way, by the way, who owns golf. that golf course that's next to you? And the golf course is okay, but the tennis slash racquetball slash handball slash pickleball slash basketball court is not okay. Who owns that golf course? The city of Portland. Oh, so the city says its sports complex in the middle of a neighborhood is perfectly okay, but a private sector sports complex is is against the rules. Yeah. Hey, you know, Lars, I, it, <laughs> it's so frustrating, it's hard to talk about, but I think one of the things that we ought to think about is really where is uh, our law enforcement? I know our neighbors are not happy now. Um, you know, we have a person a full-time caretaking the facility, helping to protect the property uh, because, you know, it's received vandalism and graffiti and break-ins, and uh, people have been uh, threatened. Employees have been threatened by the um, people who are on drugs or, or some of the homeless people. Um, by the way, um, haven't seen the Mount Luma County prosecute either. Um, and uh, I think that one of the things that really bothers me is the amount of property taxes all of us uh, Oregonians pay for law enforcement and for services. Really, why are we paying for services when services are not rendered? I uh, agree. I mean, maybe we should deduct, and, it, and it's certainly not our police officers' fault. Their hands are being tied by those up the ladder. And um, the, the DA ought to be prosecuting crimes and we wouldn't have a, such an exodus of businesses out of downtown portland um and actually exodus is out of our state um we need to stand up as american citizens and demand our constitutional rights of law enforcement and a proper system 
Uh, By the way, Terry, before we leave the sports club altogether, because I want to get back to this. So you got five acres there. It's currently a sports club. It's all shut down. And despite all the people who come to you and say, why aren't you letting our kids play pickleball there or other sports? Because sports do change in popularity. I mean, there are, there are sports that get popular for a time, and then they're not as popular for a time, as you said. And new ones come in. What are you allowed to do with that five acres? Well, it's actually ten acres. Oh, sorry. And a uh, little over 10 acres. And um, it has everything from volleyball to basketball to tennis courts to volleyball, uh, sand volleyball courts. Uh, we are allowed to pay the property taxes. We are allowed to pay the city of Portland almost, what, three or $4,000 a month for the rainwater that hits our roof, but we can't use it. For so any what it are you allowed to use the land for anything? What would they be if if you wanted to make City Hall happy? And I know that's usually not your goal, nor is it mine. What would you be allowed to do with those ten acres? Uh, you could build uh, high end housing right on the golf course, and I guess um, maybe some of the elite players that come to play for the Blazers. It would make a great uh, gated home site uh, for four or five million dollar homes. And they could have a 50,000 square foot with six indoor basketball courts and locker rooms, swimming pool, and dining area. Um, or, yeah, I guess you also could um, uh, make it a center for what the city and the county and the state want to support. Is there a prospect? I mean, other than becoming a giant homeless camp, and there's always that possibility, what is the city is there any prospect for you to get your rights back to actually run it as a as a sports complex the way it was when you bought it in 95 well the the city said we would have to apply for a conditional use and then that would take the neighbors uh, that are on our driveway coming in um, because they'd have the right to uh, say their opinion uh, I do believe the city would approve it uh, because it's logical. There are no sports facility for our kids to go to. I mean, even Cleveland High School only has one basketball court. And and we used to let Cleveland High School bring their students down, their freshmen or a sophomore or junior or varsity basketball teams, men or women, and play at our facility. Um, and so it would be a great thing for our community. Um, our neighbors to the What's north, the reason, uh, in the last 30 seconds I've got, Terry, What's the reason not to do that? Is it just expense or what? Well, it would take time, and uh, we could do that. And it would be nice if the, our neighbors um, would reach out and say, you know, we would feel much safer with activity there instead of 10 acres where people could camp and vandalize and attack their homes because their homes are all very vulnerable from the backside, and the club always was the deterrent to keep people out of the neighborhood. No doubt. That's Terry Amert, owns a sports club. The city of Portland says it's been there for decades, but you have to come back to us hat in hand and ask for permission to run it that way. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the 
phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. He's the best investment in talk radio, and it's free. Lars Larson, you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And as we watch what's going on in the Middle East, a war between Israel and the terrorist group known as Hamas, that is the de facto government of the Gaza Strip, I thought we'd talk about some of the weapons. And, of course, you think weapons, you think airplanes, you think artillery. Uh, in the case of terrorist groups, uh, anything they can use to kill innocent people. Uh, Carl Zabo joins me now, who's vice president of Net Choice and a professor of Internet law at George Mason University Scalia Law School. Carl, it's good to have you back on the program. Is AI... Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to do it. Is AI going to be one of the weapons that's going to be deployed in this conflict, and how so? Yeah, so AI has already been deployed. It, it's been some time, and it is only going to ramp up further. This is one of those battlegrounds that is sometimes not discussed, and I'm glad you're bringing it up. We oftentimes see pictures of tanks, of jets, of missiles, but there's also another battlefield. It's the cyber battlefield. It's digital warfare that's going on right now. And a simple example of it, uh, just within the past 24 hours, we had uh, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad putting out statements suggesting that the bombing of the hospital in uh, Gaza was the result of Israel. Yep. It was all up on social media. Well, it was tools like AI that once the true facts got out, were able to stop the spread of that false narrative of that terrorist content. And that is one of the many areas that AI is being engaged. Similarly, the war against Israel is being fought on the digital battlefield with respect to critical infrastructure. So one of the things that's being attacked right now, every moment, are things like the power grid, hot communication infrastructure across Israel. All of that is via uh, denial of service attacks and other types of cybersecurity attacks. And those are being blocked by artificial intelligence because artificial intelligence can identify, detect, and block dangerous content faster than we can. One last example, the Iron Dome, which is one of the most impressive defense systems that Israel has. No kidding. Rockets are constantly being fired in. They're getting shot down. How is that being done? Well, when the, when the rocket gets launched, radar picks it up, and then a computer system is able to calculate the speed, trajectory, altitude, and uh, location, and then is able to program and send a counter missile 
to intercept and hit it. So it's kind of like being able to calculate in nanoseconds the ability to throw a dart several miles and hit a bullseye. By the way, Carl, I don't know if you're old enough to remember back when uh, Ronald Reagan was ridiculed for the Strategic Defense Initiative. But they said, why, you're saying that we're going to be able to fire a bullet and then fire from one gun and fire another bullet and have one bullet knock the other bullet out of the air. You know, in terms of using that as an example of how would one missile get off the ground fast enough, meet the other missile in the air and explode it in such a way that people on the ground didn't get hurt. And yet. Iron Dome does exactly that, and as you said, does it even when there's a massive number of missiles being fired at Israel. It is a truly amazing system, but in terms of AI, have they made Iron Dome unhackable enough? I always say unhackable because hack-proof really doesn't exist, does it? No, unfortunately it doesn't, but one of the um, truly amazing things about Israel is it's a population of 9 million. It's not the size of New York City, if you think about it population-wise, but they have actually developed some of the greatest cybersecurity and critical infrastructure defense systems the world has ever known. In fact, a number of our own cybersecurity programs actually were created or continue to be run out of Israel, systems like RSA, which many of us use for two-factor authentication, those types of cybersecurity systems. And so that's how they have been able to stay ahead. Now, is it hackable? Absolutely. But one of the things that AI is actually being used to do is it's being used to stop bad AI. So it's kind of like that old mad, uh, mad, uh, spy comedy, versus spy. comedy and mag, sorry, mad magazine comic. Thank you. That's what it is. Spy or spy. And so that's what we're seeing with AI versus AI. Now, one of the things that should concern us all, however, and one of the things that should be of particular interest to people on this program is the fact that we are seeing calls from people in our own government, people making calls across the Western countries to stop innovating on AI, stop developing AI. And one thing that should be crystal clear is when our government tells law-abiding citizens not to do something, law-abiding citizens listen, but the bad guys don't. Nope. Now, will they be able to use the denial of service? That's where you effectively overload certain so software by having so many inquiries pinging into it that it simply causes it to shut down. Have they been able to shut, do things like shut down power grids or shut down other communications resources with those methods? Not yet. And uh, the way I like to describe DNS attacks or denial of service attacks, as, as you describe it, it's kind of like three stooges when all three of them try to go through the door at once and nobody can get through. That's what, yeah. what a DNS attack is. As right. you described, it, it's trying to hit a server with so many requests, the server just overloads and shuts down. But what the AI is able to do is it's able to detect those sudden surges, detect patterns in them, and block those surges before they hit the server. So that only the legitimate messages get through. Carl Zabo from George Mason University Scalia Law School. Carl, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. So tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? 
Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.